Part two, chapter thirteen of Life and Times of Frederick Douglass by Frederick Douglass. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part two, chapter thirteen. Vast changes. When the war for the Union was substantially ended, and peace had dawned upon the land, as was the case almost immediately after the tragic death of President Lincoln, when the gigantic system of American slavery, which had defied the march of time and resisted all the appeals and arguments of the abolitionists and the humane testimonies of good men of every generation during two hundred and fifty years, was finally abolished and forever prohibited by the organic law of the land, a strange and perhaps perverse feeling came over me. My great and exceeding joy over those stupendous achievements, especially over the abolition of slavery, which had been the deepest desire and the great labour of my life, was slightly tinged with a feeling of sadness. I felt that I had reached the end of the noblest and best part of my life. My school was broken up, my church disbanded, and the beloved congregation dispersed, never to come together again. The anti-slavery platform had performed its work, and my voice was no longer needed. Othello's occupation was gone. The great happiness of meeting with my fellow-workers was now to be among the things of memory. Then, too, some thought of my personal future came in. Like Daniel Webster, when asked by his friends to leave John Tyler's cabinet, I naturally inquired, Where shall I go? I was still in the midst of my years, and had something of life before me, and as the minister, urged by my old friend George Bradburn, to preach anti-slavery, when to do so was unpopular, said, It is necessary for ministers to live. I felt it was necessary for me to live, and to live honestly. But where should I go, and what should I do? I could not now take hold of life as I did when I first landed in New Bedford, twenty-five years before. I could not go to the wharf of either Gideon or George Howland, to Richmond's brass foundry, or Richardson's candle and oil-works, load and unload vessels, or even ask Governor Clifford for a place as a servant. Rolling oil-casks and shoveling coal were all well enough when I was younger, or immediately after getting out of slavery. Doing this was a step up, rather than a step down. But all these avocations had had their day for me, and I had had my day for them. My public life and labours had unfitted me for the pursuits of my earlier years, and yet had not prepared me for more congenial and higher employment. Outside the question of slavery, my thoughts had not been much directed, and I could hardly hope to make myself useful in any other cause than that to which I had given the best twenty-five years of my life. A man in the situation in which I found myself has not only to divest himself of the old, which is never easily done, but to adjust himself to the new, which is still more difficult. Delivering lectures under various names, John B. Guff says, whatever may be the title, my lecture is always on temperance, and such is apt to be the case with any man who has devoted his time and thoughts to one subject for any considerable length of time. But what should I do, was the question. I had a few thousand dollars, a great convenience, and one not generally so prized by my people as it ought to be, saved from the sale of my bondage and my freedom, and the proceeds of my lectures at home and abroad, and with this sum I thought of following the noble example of my old friends Stephen and Abby Kelly Foster, purchase a little farm and settle myself down to earn an honest living by tilling the soil. My children were grown and ought to be able to take care of themselves. 
This question, however, was soon decided for me. I had, after all, acquired, a very unusual thing, a little more knowledge and aptitude fitting me for the new condition of things than I knew, and had a deeper hold upon public attention than I had supposed. Invitations began to pour in upon me from colleges, lyceums, and literary societies, offering me one hundred and even two hundred dollars for a single lecture. I had, some time before, prepared a lecture on self-made men, and also one upon ethnology, with special reference to Africa. The latter had cost me much labor, though, as I now look back upon it, it was a very defective production. I wrote it at the instance of my friend Dr. M. B. Anderson, president of Rochester University, himself a distinguished ethnologist, a deep thinker and scholar. I had been invited by one of the literary societies of Western Reserve College, then at Hudson, but recently moved to Cleveland, Ohio, to address it on commencement day, and never having spoken on such an occasion, never indeed having been myself inside of a schoolhouse for the purpose of an education, I hesitated about accepting the invitation, and finally called upon Professor Henry Wayland, son of the great Dr. Wayland of Brown University, and on Dr. Anderson, and asked their advice whether I ought to accept. Both gentlemen advised me to do so. They knew me, and evidently thought well of my ability. But the puzzling question now was, what shall I say if I do go there? It won't do to give them an old-fashioned anti-slavery discourse. I learned afterwards that such a discourse was precisely what they needed, though not what they wished, for the faculty, including the president, was in great distress because I, a colored man, had been invited, and because of the reproach this circumstance might bring upon the college. But what shall I talk about? became the difficult question. I finally hit upon the one before mentioned. I had read, with great interest, when in England a few years before, parts of Dr. Pritchard's Natural History of Man, a large volume, marvellously calm and philosophical in its discussion of the science of the origin of the races, and was thus in the line of my then convictions. I at once sought in our bookstores for this valuable book, but could not obtain it anywhere in this country. I sent to England, where I paid the sum of seven and a half dollars for it. In addition to this valuable work, President Anderson kindly gave me a little book entitled Man and His Migrations, by Dr. R. G. Latham, and loaned me the large work of Dr. Morton, the famous archaeologist, and that of Messrs. Knott and Glidden, the latter written evidently to degrade the negro, and support the then prevalent Calhoun doctrine of the rightfulness of slavery. With these books and occasional suggestions from Dr. Anderson and Professor Wayland, I set about preparing my commencement address. For many days and nights I toiled and succeeded at last in getting something together in due form. Written orations had not been in my line. I had usually depended upon my unsystematized knowledge and the inspiration of the hour and the occasion, but I had now got the scholar bee in my bonnet, and supposed that inasmuch as I was to speak to college professors and students, I must at least make a show of some familiarity with letters. It proved, as to its immediate effect, a great mistake, for my carefully studied and written address, full of learned quotations, fell dead at my feet, while a few remarks I made extemporaneously at collation were enthusiastically received. Nevertheless, the reading and labor expended were of much value to me. They were needed steps preparatory to the work upon which I was about to enter. 
If they failed at the beginning, they helped to success in the end. My lecture on the races of men were seldom called for, but that on self-made men was in great demand, especially through the West. I found that the success of a lecturer depends more upon the quality of his stock and store than the amount. My friend Wendell Phillips, for such I esteem him, who has said more cheering words to me and in vindication of my race than any man now living, has delivered his famous lecture on the lost arts during the last forty years, and I doubt if among all his lectures, and he has many, there is one in such requisition as this. When Daniel O'Connell was asked why he did not make a new speech, he playfully replied that it would take Ireland twenty years to learn his old ones. Upon some consideration as this, I adhered pretty closely to my old lecture on self-made men, retouching and shading it a little from time to time, as occasion seemed to require. Here, then, was a new vocation before me, full of advantages mentally and pecuniarily. When in the employment of the American Anti-Slavery Society, my salary was about four hundred and fifty dollars a year, and I felt I was well paid for my services, but I could now make from fifty to a hundred dollars a night, and have the satisfaction, too, that I was in some small measure helping to lift my race into consideration, for no man who lives at all lives unto himself. He either helps or hinders all who are in any wise connected with him. I never rise to speak before an American audience without something of the feeling that my failure or success will bring blame or benefit to my whole race. But my activities were not now confined entirely to lectures before lyceums. Though slavery was abolished, the wrongs of my people were not ended. Though they were not slaves, they were not yet quite free. No man can be truly free whose liberty is dependent upon the thought, feeling, and action of others, and who has himself no means in his own hands for guarding, protecting, defending, and maintaining that liberty. Yet the Negro, after his emancipation, was precisely in this state of destitution. The law on the side of freedom is of great advantage only where there is power to make that law respected. I know no class of my fellow men, however just, enlightened, and humane, which can be wisely and safely trusted absolutely with the liberties of any other class. Protestants are excellent people, but it would not be wise for Catholics to depend entirely upon them to look after their rights and interests. Catholics are a pretty good sort of people though there is a soul-shuddering history behind them, yet no enlightened Protestants would commit their liberty to their care and keeping, and yet the government had left the freedmen in a worse condition than either of these. It felt that it had done enough for him, it had made him free, and henceforth he must make his own way in the world. Yet he had none of the conditions for self-preservation or self-protection. He was free from the individual master, but the slave of society. He had neither money, property, nor friends. He was free from the old plantation, but he had nothing but the dusty road under his feet. He was free from the old quarter that once gave him shelter, but a slave to the rains of summer and to the frosts of winter. He was, in a word, literally turned loose, naked, hungry, and destitute, to the open sky. The first feeling toward him by the old master classes was full of bitterness and wrath. They resented his emancipation as an act of hostility toward them, and since they could not punish the emancipator, they felt like punishing the object which that act had emancipated. 
Hence they drove him off the old plantation, and told him he was no longer wanted there. They not only hated him because he had been freed as a punishment to them, but because they felt that they had been robbed of his labor. An element of great bitterness still came into their hearts. The freedmen had been the friend of the government, and many of his class had borne arms against them during the war. The thought of paying cash for labor that they could formerly extort by the lash did not in any wise improve their disposition to the emancipated slave, or improve his own condition. Now, since poverty has, and can have, no chance against wealth, the landless against the landowner, the ignorant against the intelligent, the freedman was powerless. He had nothing left him with which to fight the battle of life, but a slavery distorted and diseased body and lame and twisted limbs. I therefore soon found that the negro had still a cause, and that he needed my voice and pen with others to plead for it. The American Anti-Slavery Society, under the lead of Mr. Garrison, had disbanded. Its newspapers were discontinued, its agents were withdrawn from the field, and all systematic efforts by abolitionists were abandoned. Many of the society, Mr. Phillips and myself amongst the number, differed from Mr. Garrison as to the wisdom of this course. I felt that the work of the society was not done, and that it had not fulfilled its mission, which was not merely to emancipate, but to elevate the enslaved class. But, against Mr. Garrison's leadership, and the surprise and joy occasioned by the emancipation, it was impossible to keep the association alive, and the cause of the freedmen was left mainly to individual effort, and to hastily extemporized societies of an ephemeral character, brought together under benevolent impulse, but having no history behind them, and, being new to the work, they were not as effective for good as the old society would have been, had it followed up its work and kept its old instrumentalities in operation. From the first I saw no chance of bettering the condition of the freedman until he should cease to be merely a freedman and should become a citizen. I insisted that there was no safety for him or for anybody else in America outside the American government, that to guard, protect, and maintain his liberty the freedman should have the ballot that the liberties of the American people were dependent upon the ballot-box, the jury-box, and the cartridge-box, that without these no class of people could live and flourish in this country, and this was now the word for the hour with me, and the word to which the people of the North willingly listened when I spoke. Hence, regarding as I did the elective franchise as the one great power by which all civil rights are obtained, enjoyed, and maintained under our form of government and the one without which freedom to any class is delusive, if not impossible, I set myself to work with whatever force and energy I possessed to secure this power for the recently emancipated millions. The demand for the ballot was such a vast advance upon the former objects proclaimed by the friends of the colored race, that it startled and struck men as preposterous and wholly inadmissible anti-slavery men themselves were not united as to the wisdom of such demand mr garrison himself though foremost for the abolition of slavery was not yet quite ready to join this advanced movement in this respect he was in the rear of mr phillips who saw not only the justice but the wisdom and necessity of the measure to his credit it may be said that he gave the full strength of his character and eloquence to its adoption while Mr. Garrison thought it too much to ask, Mr. Phillips thought it too little. 
while the one thought it might be postponed to the future, the other thought it ought to be done at once. But Mr. Garrison was not a man to lag far in the rear of truth and right, and he soon came to see with the rest of us that the ballot was essential to the freedom of the freedman. A man's head will not long remain wrong when his heart is right. The applause awarded to Mr. Garrison by the Conservatives for his moderation, both in respect of his views on this question and the disbandment of the American Anti-Slavery Society, must have disturbed him. He was, at any rate, soon found on the right side of the suffrage question. The enfranchisement of the freedmen was resisted on many grounds, but mainly on these two. First, the tendency of the measure to bring the freedmen into conflict with the old master class and the white people of the South generally. Secondly, their unfitness by reason of their ignorance, servility, and degradation, to exercise over the destinies of this great nation so great a power as the ballot. These reasons against the measure, which were supposed to be unanswerable, were in some sense the most powerful arguments in its favor. The argument that the possession of suffrage would be likely to bring the Negro into conflict with the old master class at the South, had its main force in the admission that the interests of the two classes antagonized each other, and that the maintenance of the one would prove inimical to the other. It resolved itself into this, that, if the Negro had the means of protecting his civil rights, those who had formerly denied him these rights would be offended and make war upon him. Experience has shown in a measure the correctness of this position. The old master was offended to find the negro whom he lately possessed the right to enslave and flog, to toil, casting a ballot equal to his own, and resorted to all sorts of meanness, violence, and crime, to dispossess him of the enjoyment of this point of equality. In this respect, the exercise of the right of suffrage by the negro has been attended with the evil which the opponents of the measure predicted, and they could say, I've told you so, but immeasurably and intolerably greater would have been the evil consequences resulting from the denial to one class of this natural means of protection, and granting it to the other, and hostile class. It would have been to have committed the lamb to the care of the wolf, the arming of one class and disarming the other, protecting one interest and destroying the other, making the rich strong and the poor weak, the white man a tyrant and the black man a slave. The very fact, therefore, that the old master classes of the South felt that their interests were opposed to those of the freedmen, instead of being a reason against their enfranchisement, was the most powerful one in its favor. Until it shall be safe to leave the lamb in the hold of the lion, the laborer in the power of the capitalist, the poor in the hands of the rich, it will not be safe to leave a newly emancipated people completely in the power of their former masters, especially when such masters have not ceased to be such, from enlightened moral convictions, but by irresistible force. Then, on the part of the government itself, had it denied this great right to the freedmen, it would have been another proof that republics are ungrateful. It would have been rewarding its enemies, and punishing its friends, embracing its foes, and spurning its allies, setting a premium on treason, and degrading loyalty. As to the second point, viz., the Negro's ignorance and degradation, there was no disputing either. It was the nature of slavery, from whose depths he had arisen, to make him so, and it would have kept him so. It was the policy of the system to keep him both ignorant and degraded, the better and more safely to defraud him of his hard earnings. 
This argument never staggered me. The ballot in the hands of the negro was necessary to open the door of the schoolhouse and to unlock to him the treasures of its knowledge. Granting all that was said of his ignorance, I used to say, if the negro knows enough to fight for his country, he knows enough to vote. If he knows enough to pay taxes for the support of the government, he knows enough to vote. If he knows as much when sober as an Irishman knows when drunk, he knows enough to vote. And now, while I am not blind to the evils which have thus far attended the enfranchisement of the colored people, I hold that the evils from which we escaped, and the good we have derived from that act, amply vindicate its wisdom. The evils it brought are in their nature temporary, and the good is permanent. The one is comparatively small, the other absolutely great. The young child has staggered on his little legs, and he has sometimes fallen and hurt his head in the fall, but then he has learned to walk. The boy in the water came near drowning, but then he has learned to swim. Great changes in the relations of mankind can never come, without evils analogous to those which have attended the emancipation and enfranchisement of the colored people of the United States. I am less amazed at these evils than by the rapidity with which they are subsiding, and not more astonished at the facility with which the former slave has become a free man, than at the rapid adjustment of the master class to the new situation. Unlike the movement for the abolition of slavery, the success of the effort for the enfranchisement of the freedmen was not long delayed. It is another illustration of how any advance in pursuance of a right principle prepares and makes easy the way to another. The way of transgression is a bottomless pit. One step in that direction invites the next, and the end is never reached. And it is the same with the path of righteous obedience. Two hundred years ago, the pious Dr. Godwin dared affirm that it was not a sin to baptize a negro, and won for him the right of baptism. It was a small concession to his manhood but it was strongly resisted by the slaveholders of Jamaica and Virginia. In this they were logical in their argument, but they were not logical in their object. They saw plainly that to concede the negro's right to baptism was to receive him into the Christian church, and make him a brother in Christ, and hence they opposed the first step sternly and bitterly. So long as they could keep him beyond the circle of human brotherhood, they could scourge him to toil, as a beast of burden, with a good Christian conscience, and without reproach. What, said they, baptize a negro? Preposterous! Nevertheless, the negro was baptized and admitted to church fellowship, and though for a long time his soul belonged to God, his body to his master, and he, poor fellow, had nothing left for himself, he is at last not only baptized, but emancipated and enfranchised. In this achievement, an interview with President Andrew Johnson, on the 7th of February, 1866, by a delegation consisting of George T. Downing, Louis H. Douglas, William E. Matthews, John Jones, John F. Cook, Joseph E. Otis, A. W. Ross, William Whipper, John M. Brown, Alexander Dunlop, and myself, will take its place in history as one of the first steps. What was said on that occasion brought the whole question virtually before the American people. Until that interview, the country was not fully aware of the intentions and policy of President Johnson on the subject of Reconstruction, especially in respect of the newly emancipated class of the South. 
after having heard the brief addresses made to him by mr downing and myself he occupied at least three-quarters of an hour in what seemed a set speech and refused to listen to any reply on our part although solicited to grant a few moments for that purpose seeing the advantage that mr johnson would have over us in getting his speech paraded before the country in the morning papers the members of the delegation met on the evening of that day and instructed me to prepare a brief reply which should go out to the country simultaneously with the president's speech to us since this reply indicates the points of difference between the president and ourselves i produce it here as a part of the history of the times it being concurred in by all the members of the delegation both the speech and the reply were commented upon very extensively mr president in consideration of a delicate sense of propriety as well as of your own repeated intimations of indisposition to discuss or listen to a reply to the views and opinions you were pleased to express to us in your elaborate speech to-day the undersigned would respectfully take this method of replying thereto believing as we do that the views and opinions you expressed in that address are entirely unsound and prejudicial to the highest interests of our race as well as to our country at large we cannot do other than expose the same and as far as may be in our power arrest their dangerous influence it is not necessary at this time to call attention to more than two or three features of your remarkable address one the first point to which we feel especially bound to take exception is your attempt to found a policy opposed to our enfranchisement upon the alleged ground of an existing hostility on the part of the former slaves toward the poor white people of the south we admit the existence of this hostility and hold that it is entirely reciprocal but you obviously commit an error by drawing an argument from an incident of slavery and making it a basis for a policy adapted to a state of freedom the hostility between the whites and blacks of the south is easily explained it has its root and sap in the relation of slavery and was incited on both sides by the cunning of the slave masters those masters secured their ascendancy over both the poor whites and blacks by putting enmity between them they divided both to conquer each there was no earthly reason why the blacks should not hate and dread the poor whites when in a state of slavery for it was from this class that their masters received their slave-catchers slave-drivers and overseers they were the men called in upon all occasions by the masters whenever any fiendish outrage was to be committed upon the slave now sir you cannot but perceive that the cause of this hatred removed the effect must be removed also slavery is abolished the cause of this antagonism is removed and you must see that it is altogether illogical and putting new wine into old bottles to legislate from slaveholding and slave-driving premises for a people whom you have repeatedly declared it your purpose to maintain in freedom two besides even if it were true as you allege that the hostility of the blacks toward the poor whites must necessarily project itself into a state of freedom and that this enmity between the two races is even more intense in a state of freedom than in a state of slavery in the name of heaven we reverently ask how can you in view of your professed desire to promote the welfare of the black man deprive him of all means of defence and clothe him whom you regard as his enemy in the panoply of political power 
Can it be that you recommend a policy which would arm the strong and cast down the defenceless? Can you, by any possibility of reasoning, regard this as just, fair, or wise? Experience proves that those are most abused who can be abused with the greatest impunity. Men are whipped oftenest who are whipped easiest. Peace between races is not to be secured by degrading one race and exalting another, by giving power to one race and withholding it from another, but by maintaining a state of equal justice between all classes, first pure, then peaceable. 3. On the colonization theory, you were pleased to broach, very much could be said. It is impossible to suppose, in view of the usefulness of the black man in time of peace as a labourer in the South, and in time of war as a soldier at the North, and the growing respect for his rights among the people, and his increasing adaptation to a high state of civilization in his native land, that there can ever come a time when he can be removed from this country without a terrible shock to its prosperity and peace. Besides, the worst enemy of the nation could not cast upon its fair name a greater infamy than to admit that negroes could be tolerated among them in a state of the most degrading slavery and oppression, and must be cast away, driven into exile, for no other cause than having been freed from their chains. Washington, February 7, 1866. From this time onward, the question of suffrage for the freedmen was not allowed to rest. The rapidity with which it gained strength was something quite marvellous and surprising even to its advocates. Senator Charles Sumner soon took up the subject in the Senate, and treated it in his usually able and exhaustive manner. It was a great treat to listen to his argument running through two days, abounding as it did in eloquence, learning, and conclusive reasoning. A committee of the Senate had reported a proposition, giving to the states lately in rebellion, in so many words, complete option as to the enfranchisement of their colored citizens, only coupling with that proposition the condition that, to such states as chose to enfranchise such citizens, the basis of their representation in Congress should be proportionately increased, or, in other words, that only three-fifths of the colored citizens should be counted in the basis of representation in states where colored citizens were not allowed to vote, while in the states granting suffrage to colored citizens the entire colored people should be counted in the basis of representation. Against this proposition myself and associates addressed to the Senate of the United States the following memorial. To the Honorable the Senate of the United States. The undersigned, being a delegation representing the colored people of the several states, and now sojourning in Washington, charged with the duty to look after the best interests of the recently emancipated, would most respectfully, but earnestly, pray your honorable body to favor no amendment of the constitution of the united states which will grant any one or all of the states of this union to disenfranchise any class of citizens on the ground of race or color for any consideration whatever they would further respectfully represent that the constitution as adopted by the fathers of the republic in seventeen eighty nine evidently contemplated the result which has now happened to wit the abolition of slavery the men who framed it, and those who adopted it, framed and adopted it for the people, and the whole people, colored men being at that time legal voters in most of the states. In that instrument, as it now stands, 
there is not a sentence or a syllable conveying any shadow of right or authority by which any state may make color or race a disqualification for the exercise of the right of suffrage and the undersigned will regard as a real calamity the introduction of any words expressly or by implication giving any state or states such power and we respectfully submit that if the amendment now pending before your honorable body shall be adopted it will enable any state to deprive any class of citizens of the elective franchise notwithstanding it was obviously framed with a view to affect the question of negro suffrage only for these and other reasons the undersigned respectfully pray that the amendment to the constitution recently passed by the house and now before your body be not adopted and as in duty bound etc it was the opinion of senator william pitt fessenden senator henry wilson and many others that the measure here memorialized against would if incorporated into the constitution certainly bring about the enfranchisement of the whole colored population of the south it was held by them to be an inducement to the states to make suffrage universal since the basis of representation would be enlarged or contracted according as suffrage should be extended or limited but the judgment of these leaders was not the judgment of senator sumner senators wade yates howe and others or of the colored people yet weak as this measure was it encountered the united opposition of democratic senators on that side the hon thomas h hendricks of indiana took the lead in appealing to popular prejudice against the negro he contended that among other objectionable and insufferable results that would flow from its adoption would be that a negro would ultimately be a member of the united states senate i shall never forget the ineffable scorn and indignation with which mr hendricks deplored the possibility of such an event in less however than a decade from that debate senators revels and bruce both colored men had fulfilled the startling prophecy of the indiana senator it was not however by the halfway measure which he was opposing for its radicalism but by the fourteenth and fifteenth amendments that these gentlemen reached their honorable positions in defeating the option proposed to be given to the states to extend or deny suffrage to their colored population much credit is due to the delegation already named as visiting president johnson that delegation made it their business to personally see and urge upon leading republican statesmen the wisdom and duty of impartial suffrage day after day mr downing and myself saw and conversed with those members of the senate whose advocacy of suffrage would be likely to ensure its success the second marked step in effecting the enfranchisement of the negro was made at the national loyalists convention held at philadelphia in september eighteen sixty six this body was composed of delegates from the south north and west its object was to diffuse clear views of the situation of affairs at the south and to indicate the principles by it deemed advisable to be observed in the reconstruction of society in the southern states this convention was as its history shows numerously attended by the ablest and most influential men from all sections of the country and its deliberations participated in by them the policy foreshadowed by andrew johnson who by the grace of the assassin's bullet was then in abraham lincoln's seat a policy based upon the idea that the rebel states were never out of the union and hence had forfeited no rights which his pardon could not restore 
gave importance to this convention more than anything which was then occurring at the South. For through the treachery of this bold, bad man, we seemed then about to lose nearly all that had been gained by the war. I was at the time residing in Rochester, and was duly elected as a delegate from that city to attend this convention. The honor was a surprise and a gratification to me. It was unprecedented for a city of over sixty thousand white citizens, and only about two hundred colored residents, to elect a colored man to represent them in a national political convention, and the announcement of it gave a shock of no inconsiderable violence to the country. Many Republicans, with every respect for me personally, were unable to see the wisdom of such a course. They dreaded the clamor of social equality and amalgamation, which would be raised against the party, in consequence of this startling innovation. They, dear fellows, found it much more agreeable to talk of the principles of liberty as glittering generalities than to reduce those principles to practice. When the train on which I was going to the convention reached Harrisburg, it met and was attached to another from the West, crowded with Western and Southern delegates on the way to the convention, and among them were several loyal governors, chief among whom was the loyal governor of Indiana, Oliver P. Morton, a man of Websterian mould in all that appertained to mental power. When my presence became known to these gentlemen, a consultation was immediately held among them upon the question as to what was best to do with me. It seems strange now, in view of all the progress which had been made, that such a question could arise. But the circumstances of the times made me the Jonah of the Republican ship, and responsible for the contrary winds and misbehaving weather. Before we reached Lancaster, on our eastward-bound trip, I was duly waited upon by a committee of my brother delegates, which had been appointed by other honorable delegates, to represent to me the undesirableness of my attendance upon the National Loyalists' Convention. The spokesman of these sub-delegates was a gentleman from New Orleans with a very French name, which has now escaped me, but which I wish I could recall, that I might credit him with a high degree of politeness and the gift of eloquence. He began by telling me that he knew my history and my works, and that he entertained a very high respect for me that both himself and the gentlemen who sent him, as well as those who accompanied him, regarded me with admiration, that there was not among them the remotest objection to sitting in the convention with me, but their personal wishes in the matter they felt should be set aside for the sake of our common cause, that whether I should or should not go into the convention was purely a matter of expediency that I must know that there was a very strong and bitter prejudice against my race in the North as well as at the South, and that the cry of social and political equality would not fail to be raised against the Republican Party if I should attend this loyal national convention. He insisted that it was a time for the sacrifice of my own personal feeling, for the good of the Republican cause, that there were several districts in the state of Indiana so evenly balanced that a very slight circumstance would be likely to turn the scale against us, and defeat our congressional candidates, and thus leave Congress without a two-thirds vote to control the headstrong and treacherous man then in the presidential chair. It was urged that this was a terrible responsibility for me or any other man to take. I listened very attentively to this address, uttering no word during its delivery, but when it was finished I said to the Speaker and the Committee, with all the emphasis I could throw into my voice and manner. Gentlemen, with all respect, 
you might as well ask me to put a loaded pistol to my head and blow my brains out as to ask me to keep out of this convention to which i have been duly elected then gentlemen what would you gain by this exclusion would not the charge of cowardice certain to be brought against you prove more damaging than that of amalgamation would you not be branded all over the land as dastardly hypocrites professing principles which you have no wish or intention of carrying out as a matter of policy or expediency you will be wise to let me in everybody knows that i have been duly elected by the city of rochester as a delegate the fact has been broadly announced and commented upon all over the country if i am not admitted the public will ask where is douglas why is he not seen in the convention and you would find that enquiry more difficult to answer than any charge brought against you for favouring political or social equality but ignoring the question of policy altogether and looking at it as one of right and wrong i am bound to go into that convention not to do so would contradict the principles and practice of my life with this answer the committee retired from the car in which i was seated and did not again approach me on the subject but i saw plainly enough then as well as on the morning when the loyalist procession was to march through the streets of philadelphia that while i was not to be formally excluded i was to be ignored by the convention i was the ugly and deformed child of the family and to be kept out of sight as much as possible while there was company in the house especially was it the purpose to offer me no inducement to be present in the ranks of the procession of its members and friends which was to start from independence hall on the first morning of its meeting in good season however i was present at this grand starting point my reception there confirmed my impression as to the policy intended to be pursued towards me few of the many i knew were prepared to give me a cordial recognition and among these few i may mention general benjamin f butler who whatever others may say of him has always shown a courage equal to his convictions almost everybody else on the ground whom i met seemed to be ashamed or afraid of me on the previous night i had been warned that i should not be allowed to walk through the city in the procession fears had been expressed that my presence in it would so shock the prejudices of the people of philadelphia as to cause the procession to be mobbed the members of the convention were to walk two abreast and as i was the only coloured member of the convention the question was as to who of my brother members would consent to walk with me the answer was not long in coming there was one man present who was broad enough to take in the whole situation and brave enough to meet the duty of the hour one who was neither afraid nor ashamed to own me as a man and a brother one man of the purest caucasian type a poet and a scholar brilliant as a writer eloquent as a speaker and holding a high and influential position the editor of a weekly journal having the largest circulation of any weekly paper in the city or state of new york and that man was mr theodore tilton he came to me in my isolation seized me by the hand in a most brotherly way and proposed to walk with me in the procession i have in my life been in many awkward and disagreeable positions when the presence of a friend would have been highly valued but i think i never appreciated an act of courage and generous sentiment more highly than i did that of this brave young man when we marched through the streets of philadelphia on this memorable day well what came of all these dark forebodings of timid men how was my presence regarded by the populace and what effect did it produce 
I will tell you. The fears of the loyal governors, who wished me excluded to propitiate the favor of the crowd, met with a signal reproof. Their apprehensions were shown to be groundless, and they were compelled, as many of them confessed to me afterwards, to own themselves entirely mistaken. The people were more enlightened and had made more progress than their leaders had supposed. An act for which those leaders, expected to be pelted with stones, only brought to them unmeasured applause. Along the whole line of march my presence was cheered repeatedly and enthusiastically. I was myself utterly surprised by the hardiness and unanimity of the popular approval. We were marching through a city remarkable for the depth and bitterness of its hatred of the abolition movement a city whose populace had mobbed anti-slavery meetings, burned temperance halls and churches owned by colored people, and burned down Pennsylvania Hall because it had opened its doors upon terms of equality to people of different colors. But now the children of those who had committed these outrages and follies were applauding the very principles which their fathers had condemned. After the demonstrations of this first day, I found myself a welcome member of the convention, and cordial greeting took the place of cold aversion. The victory was short, signal, and complete. During the passage of the procession, as we were marching through Chestnut Street, an incident occurred which excited some interest in the crowd, and was noticed by the press at the time, and may perhaps be properly related here as a part of the story of my eventful life. It was my meeting Mrs. Amanda Sears, the daughter of my old mistress, Miss Lucretia Auld, the same Lucretia to whom I was indebted for so many acts of kindness when under the rough treatment of Aunt Katie, at the old plantation home of Colonel Edward Lloyd. Mrs. Sears now resided in Baltimore, and as I saw her on the corner of Ninth and Chestnut Streets, I hastily ran to her and expressed my surprise and joy at meeting her. "'But what brought you to Philadelphia at this time?' I asked. She replied with animated voice and countenance, "'I heard you were to be here, and I came to see you walk in this procession.' The dear lady, with her two children, had been following us for hours. Here was the daughter of the owner of a slave, following with enthusiasm that slave as a free man, and listening with joy to the plaudits he received as he marched along through the crowded streets of the great city and here I may relate another circumstance which should have found place earlier in this story, which will further explain the feeling subsisting between Mrs. Sears and myself. Seven years prior to our meeting as just described, I delivered a lecture in National Hall, Philadelphia, and at its close a gentleman approached me and said, Mr. Douglas, do you know that your once mistress has been listening to you to-night? I replied that I did not, nor was I inclined to believe it, I had four or five times before had a similar statement made to me, by different individuals in different states, and this made me sceptical in this instance. The next morning, however, I received from a Mr. William Needles a very elegantly written note, which stated that she who was Amanda Auld, daughter of Thomas and Lucretia Auld, and granddaughter to my old master, Captain Aaron Anthony, was now married to Mr. John L. Sears, a coal merchant in West Philadelphia. The street and number of Mr. Sears's office was given, so that I might, by seeing him, assure myself of the facts in the case, and perhaps learn something of the relatives whom I left in slavery. This note, with the intimation given me the night before, convinced me that there was something in it, and I resolved to know the truth. 
I had now been out of slavery twenty years, and no word had come to me from my sisters or my brother Perry or my grandmother. My separation had been as complete as if I had been an inhabitant of another planet. A law of Maryland at that time visited with heavy fine and imprisonment any colored person who should come into the state, so I could not go to them any more than they could come to me. Eager to know if my kinsfolk still lived, and what was their condition, I made my way to the office of Mr. Sears, found him in, and handed him the note I had received from Mr. Needles, and asked him to be so kind as to read it, and tell me if the facts were as they are stated. After reading the note, he said it was true, but he must decline any conversation with me, since not to do so would be a sacrifice to the feelings of his father-in-law. I deeply regretted his decision, spoke of my long separation from my relations, and appealed to him to give me some information concerning them. I saw that my words were not without their effect. Presently he said, You publish a newspaper, I believe. I do, I said but if that is your objection to speaking with me, no word of our conversation shall go into its columns. To make a long story short, we had then quite a long conversation, during which Mr. Sears said that in my narrative I had done his father-in-law injustice, for he was really a kind-hearted man, and a good master. I replied that there must be two sides to the relation of master and slave, and what was deemed kind and just to the one was the opposite to the other. Mr. Sears was not disposed to be unreasonable, and the longer we talked, the nearer we came together. I finally asked permission to see Mrs. Sears, the little girl of seven or eight years when I left the eastern shore of Maryland. This request was at first a little too much for him, and he put me off by saying that she was a mere child when I last saw her, and that she was now the mother of a large family of children, and I would not know her. He, as well as she, could tell me everything about my people. I pressed my suit, however, insisting that I could select Miss Amanda out of a thousand other ladies, my recollection of her was so perfect, and begged him to test my memory at this point. After much parley of this nature, he at length consented to my wishes, giving me the number of his house and name of street, with permission to call at three o'clock p.m. on the next day. I left him delighted, and prompt to the hour was ready for my visit. I dressed myself in my best, hired the finest carriage I could get to take me, partly because of the distance, and partly to make the contrast between the slave and the free man as striking as possible. Mr. Sears had been equally thoughtful. He had invited to his house a number of friends to witness the meeting between Mrs. Sears and myself. I was somewhat disconcerted when I was ushered into the large parlours occupied by about thirty ladies and gentlemen, to all of whom I was a perfect stranger. I saw the design to test my memory, by making it difficult for me to guess who of the company was Miss Amanda. In her girlhood she was small and slender, and hence a thin and delicately formed lady was seated in a rocking-chair near the centre of the room with a little girl by her side. The device was good, but it did not succeed. Glancing around the room, I saw in an instant the lady who was a child twenty-five years before, and a wife and mother now satisfied of this, I said, Mr. Sears, if you will allow me, I will select Miss Amanda from this company. I started towards her, and she, seeing that I recognized her, bounded to me with joy in every feature, and expressed her great happiness at seeing me. All thought of slavery, color, or what might seem to belong to the dignity of her position, vanished. 
and the meeting was as the meeting of friends long separated, yet still present in each other's memory and affection. Amanda made haste to tell me that she agreed with me about slavery, and that she had freed all her slaves as they had become of age. She brought her children to me, and I took them in my arms, with sensations which I could not, if I would stop here, to describe. One explanation of the feeling of this lady towards me was that her mother, who died when she was yet a tender child, had been briefly described by me in a little narrative of my life, published many years before our meeting, and when I could have had no motive but the highest for what I said of her. She read my story, and had through me learned something of the amiable qualities of her mother. She also recollected that as I had had trials as a slave, she had had trials under the care of a stepmother, and that when she was harshly spoken to by her father's second wife, she could always read in my dark face the sympathy of one who had often received kind words from the lips of her beloved mother. Mrs. Sears died three years ago in Baltimore, but she did not depart without calling me to her bedside, that I might tell her as much as I could about her mother whom she was firm in the faith that she should meet in another and better world. She especially wished me to describe to her the personal appearance of her mother, and desired to know if any of her own children, then present, resembled her. I told her that the young lady standing in the corner of the room was the image of her mother in form and features. She looked at her daughter and said, Her name is Lucretia, after my mother. After telling me that her life had been a happy one, and thanking me for coming to see her on her deathbed, she said she was ready to die. We parted to meet no more in life. The interview touched me deeply, and was, I could not help thinking, a strange one, another proof that truth is often stranger than fiction. If any reader of this part of my life shall see in it the evidence of a want of manly resentment for wrongs inflicted by slavery upon myself and race, and by the ancestors of this lady, so it must be. No man can be stronger than nature, one touch of which, we are told, makes all the world akin. I esteem myself a good, persistent hater of injustice and oppression, but my resentment ceases when they cease, and I have no heart to visit upon children the sins of their fathers. It will be noticed that when I first met Mr. Sears in Philadelphia, he declined to talk with me, on the ground that I had been unjust to Captain Auld, his father-in-law. Soon after that meeting, Captain Auld had occasion to go to Philadelphia, and as usual went straight to the house of his son-in-law. He had hardly finished the ordinary salutations when he said, Sears, I see by the papers that Frederick has recently been in Philadelphia. Did you go to hear him? Yes, sir, was the reply. After asking something about my lecture, he said, well, Sears, did Frederick come to see you? Yes, sir, said Sears. Well, how did you receive him? Mr. Sears then told him all about my visit, and had the satisfaction of hearing the old man say that he had done right in giving me welcome to his house. This last fact I have from Reverend J. D. Long, who, with his wife, was one of the party invited to meet me at the house of Mr. Sears, on the occasion of my visit to Mrs. Sears but I must now return from this digression, and further relate my experience in the Loyalist National Convention, and how, from that time, there was an impetus given to the enfranchisement of the freedmen, which culminated in the Fifteenth Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. From the first, the members of the Convention were divided in their views of the proper measures of reconstruction, and this division was in some sense sectional. 
the men from the far south strangely enough were quite radical while those from the border states were mostly conservative and unhappily these last had from the first the control of the convention a kentucky gentleman was made president its other officers were for the most part kentuckians and all were in sentiment opposed to colored suffrage there was a whole heap to use a kentucky phrase of halfness in that state during the war for the union and there was much more there after the war the maryland delegates with the exception of hon john l thomas were in sympathy with kentucky those from virginia except hon john minor botts were unwilling to entertain the question the result was that the convention was broken square in two the kentucky president declared it adjourned and left the chair against the earnest protests of the friends of manhood suffrage but the friends of this measure were not to be outgeneraled and suppressed in this way and instantly reorganized elected hon john m botts of virginia president discussed and passed resolutions in favor of enfranchising the freedmen and thus placed the question before the country in such a manner that it could not be ignored the delegates from the southern states were quite in earnest and bore themselves grandly in support of the measure but the chief speakers and advocates of suffrage on that occasion were mr theodore tilton and miss anna e dickinson of course on such a question i could not be expected to be silent i was called forward and responded with all the energy of my soul for i looked upon suffrage to the negro as the only measure which could prevent him from being thrust back into slavery from this time onward the question of suffrage had no rest the rapidity with which it gained strength was more than surprising to me in addition to the justice of the measure it was soon commended by events as a political necessity as in the case of the abolition of slavery the white people of the rebellious states had themselves to thank for its adoption had they accepted with moderate grace the decision of the court to which they appealed and the liberal conditions of peace offered to them and united heartily with the national government in its efforts to reconstruct their shattered institutions instead of sullenly refusing as they did their counsel and their votes to that end they might easily have defeated the argument based upon the necessity for the measure as it was the question was speedily taken out of the hands of color delegations and mere individual efforts and became a part of the policy of the republican party and president u s grant with his characteristic nerve and clear perception of justice promptly recommended the great amendment to the constitution by which colored men are to-day invested with complete citizenship the right to vote and to be voted for in the american republic end of part two chapter thirteen